live from the District of Columbia. You are listening to the Black Fundraisers Podcast, a weekly podcast that celebrates, inspires, and equips black fundraisers to excel and positively impact black communities. With your host, Kia Kroon. Good day, good people. How you doing? How you living? It's some tough times we're dealing with, and I'm just sending warm and positive vibes to everybody. Through your, your phone or your computer, wherever you're listening, be kind to yourself. Take the time you need for self. That's the only way. And I think it's important to say that, considering what we're being inundated with in the media, uh, in our day-to-day lives, still grappling with the pandemic. Make sure you're taking care of yourself, good people. Today, y'all, we're continuing the conversation about the Black ceiling that impacts Black men and women in the nonprofit sector who are looking to level up. I talk to countless Black men and women who love the nonprofit sector and have years of experience and have valuable lived experience to bring to executive leadership, but they're not necessarily being afforded the opportunity. Uh, They are qualified, have a significant experience, significant education, and lived experience that makes them great candidates for nonprofit executive leadership. They're encountering this glass ceiling. So today, good people, I'm bringing on Sarah Taylor. She is the founding president and CEO of Positive Steps and managing director of Taylor Jones Event Management Services. She is employed as a full-time training specialist and community liaison in Western New York in the Rochester area where she focuses on social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. She's stopping by to talk about her experience climbing the ladder in the nonprofit sector to encounter that glass ceiling and how she's dealt with it, how she's taken the tragedy and pain of being passed over for countless leadership roles and how that propelled her into purpose and her current work as a DEI champion. Let's get into it. We're on Sarah Taylor, welcome to the Black Fundraisers podcast. How are you? I am so excited and, and thank you, uh, Kia. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm excited to be in this space and the amazing things that you're doing on in this and, and globally. I, I can't just say uh, regionally, I have to say globally. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us. So I had and I took the opportunity to tell the good people listening about how terrific, how dope you are. And, you know, some of the storied accomplishments you've achieved. So I want to dive right in. I want to go there. You wrote an article in 2018, and it really blessed me. Even in, in 2021, I came across this article and it blessed me because the 
subject of blacks and the lack of black representation we see in the nonprofit C-suite, you know, I'm very passionate about that issue. So I came across your article entitled, The Black Ceiling Exists for African-American Women Seeking Nonprofit Leadership Roles. And that article was published by the Rochester Democrat and even syndicated by USA Today. And I'm telling you, it was a whole word. I agreed and nodded my head the whole time I read it. Talk to us about that black ceiling and your personal experience with it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That writing that op-ed changed my life and, 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 you know, my journey. My motto is, is my no uh, gets women behind me or besides me a yes. My purpose is well served. So just to share a little bit about coming up to that story and that journey. I started my career, you know, looking at my personal journey as a teen mother, being raised in a small town outside of Pittsburgh, already living in a a household of poverty, but at that time, not knowing we were poor and knowing that I wanted better for myself and my son. I moved to upstate New York and throughout my first two years there, I knew right away that I had to go to college. I wasn't thinking about college. Um, So as I began to develop my career journey, I wanted to be a journalist originally, but knew that I didn't have strong writing skills. And so I began to work at a hospital in food service and with pass trays and going up to the geriatric floor and smiling. And so I said, okay, I want to work with the elderly. I think I want to go to school for social work. So I began my journey in, you know, recreation in a nursing home and then eventually working in a homeless shelter. But I always knew that I had that ability to lead and convene and wanted to be a part of the community. And so I began to, you know, participate in community consortiums related to homelessness and teen mothers and really get involved with my community. If I'm going to live in a community, I wanna be a part of it. And so that's how my career journey started in social work. And then from there, I obtained a couple leadership roles in housing and uh, mentors would say to me, mentors, women of color said, you would be a great director. And I said, you think so? And they were like, yes, you have the skills and you have the mannerisms, you know what to say, you know about running programs, quality assurance, budgets, outcomes, everything that we're taught we need to know in management and leadership roles within nonprofit. And so someone gave me an opportunity. It was a woman of color that said, I want you to be a director. I want you to mentor under me and really gave me that opportunity. And from there, my career took off. And so over a 15, 20 year span, working in management positions, directorship positions and non-for-profit, understanding uh, fundraising, having an event management business, I know how to raise funds. I thought in 2016, 17, you know what? It's your turn. You can do this. Everyone respects you in this community. You know the community needs. You know the data. You know what some of the solutions are to some of our social issues. And so I began my journey applying for CEO roles. But I knew, looking at our local nonprofits, uh, that there were not a lot of 
nonprofit CEOs and executive directors. So I knew my journey had to look different in a sense of hiring an executive coach, uh, getting mentors, both male, female, black, white, Latinx, um, just wanting to have that mentorship, which is critical getting high level uh, recommendations from key leaders in the community. And I also convened two high level mock interviews, brought together a board makeup, deans, attorneys, marketing executive research. I took them all out to dinner and they gave me a mock interview. Highly prepared, highly prepared for this journey, for this interview, putting together PowerPoints, presentations, responding to the questions. And I got a no. Um, and in that no, I also had colleagues of color, women, Black women that left this community, went down south or went um, down uh, to New York City area after getting a no. One of my colleagues, Dr. Andrea Kane, was even uh, my inspiration and mentor she was even interim CEO twice um, and still got a no. And so I began to ask questions to other leaders that got graduate degrees and programs that I was in. Um, and I start hearing the same theme about women of color, black women being qualified and not getting a no. And what made this very, very alarming to me is when I look at who nonprofits were serving. When you have nonprofits serving 70, 80% uh, of families and children of color, but they lack that leadership, we got an issue. And so after I got the nose, I wrote my story and it changed my life. Thousands of women from all over the country, Middle Eastern, uh, Native American, indigenous, black women, um, women, uh, Latina women contacted me and said, me too, me too. And that's when our movement was birthed, the women of color movement. And that's when I began to aggressively walk in this space of equity and looking at statistics and some of the reports from the Building Movement Project and partnering with them, bringing at that time, Miss Bayou was there and brought her into Rochester for a couple equity events and, and spaces as we talked about women of color and, and leaders of Black uh, leaders in, in the space of nonprofit. So that's how my journey began. Um, taking, looking, having that career pathway, that level of experience. And at the time I applied for the CEOs and executive director roles, uh, I was in a vice president role uh, managing a $6 million division. And, and granted, the positions that I applied for executive leadership roles, their budgets were not even the size of the budget I was currently holding. They were maybe 5 million, the two different organizations I applied for. So when you wanna talk about inequities, um, you know, we have all the experience, but yet we get no's. So many times, particularly now when we talk about racial equity and leadership development, they want us to take more leadership classes, more leadership development. We got what it takes. Let's get to the real issues of systemic racism that continue to be barriers for women of color, Black women particularly, as we go and get everything we're taught to get. And as I often use my story as a case study 
of someone that took all the steps uh, to lead, hoping that would lead to an executive leadership role and still got to know. I got to unpack some of what you just shared, Sarah. And for people listening, good people listening, if you don't feel a tingle and have some goosebumps, I'm going to need you to play this back. Because Sarah, as you're talking, as you have been sharing, I can tell you that I feel the passion and I feel the purpose that's on your life. It's coming through your narrative. It's literally coming through this Zoom screen as you and I are talking. Yeah. And you have shared with me and the listeners that you invested in yourself, mm -hmm. you did the work, you prepared, you researched, you had incredible passion for the causes that mm -hmm. you, these organization or organization that you, you sought after and, and pursued a path to becoming an executive mm -hmm. leader, right? Absolutely. And you know, these, Two organizations that I applied for leadership roles, ironically, one is probably two miles from my house uh, in the heart of the city and serves 98% uh, uh, black and brown families. And when I interviewed in front of that board, and, and I need you to hear what I'm going to say, I interviewed in front of a board interview makeup of five white males and one white female. Now, this is for an organization in the heart of the city that serves 98% families of color. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Not that they didn't choose me, but what is wrong with that picture? The fact that a board, a well-informed board, would have never put a makeup, an interview makeup forth like that in the first place. That showed me how out of touch with equity and advancing that organization mission that that board was out of touch with the work they are charged to do. I want to put a pin right here because this is really important and I want people to get this. Your story, that board, the lack of diversity, and we're talking about a lack of diversity, not just in Black representation within that organization, that leadership, right? We're talking about diversity of thought. We're talking about diversity and lived experience. Mm -hmm. Because when you go to work, just like I go to work, we bring that with us. We're talking about loss all around the board and, and, not, and being aloof of the community you serve, which is a real issue. And when you and I talked some time ago, I think I shared with you an experience that I had mm -hmm. when I moved to the DMV area, I went to a bidders conference. I won't name the organization. This is a grand tour, um, went to this bidder conference. And as soon as I walked in the room and this was a pretty big meeting space, there were round mm -hmm. tables and I'm looking around the room and mm -hmm. I'm seeing more white leaders, white men and women, mm -hmm. EDs, 
PDs, program directors, mm-hmm. CEOs, development folks. And I remember thinking, okay, I hadn't really been in this region for very long. I remember mm-hmm. thinking that that was a little uncanny considering the cause areas that were being discussed. Human service organizations were heavily represented in the room. And mm-hmm. we know that in different communities in Baltimore, the targeted demographic is people of color, particularly black men and women and children and mm-hmm. families, right? So I remember thinking, wow, you know, what? just like what you just said, what's wrong with this picture? This is problematic because you have organizations provisioning services to constituents with a lack of representation within their leadership function. Great, you might have, these organizations might have Black representation in the service provisioning component, right, which is important, but that Mm -hmm. leadership component is all the more critical in determining the strategic imperative and direction of the organizations, right? So I want to talk about this when you talk about the need for diverse leaders within this organization and other organizations, this is not just good business sense we're talking about here. We're talking about community representation. Can you elaborate a little bit on why you believe that is so important? Absolutely. I think it has multi-layers to implications. When you serve large numbers of communities of color, families of color, but lack the leadership, it sends a message in itself that we're not good enough. We're not good enough to lead, that we are in this community, we're working in this community. You see direct service uh, providers, front-end social workers, but not good enough. That sends a message in itself. We know that many of our families, you know, that serve children and, and, and families living in poverty, they need to see us serving in leadership roles. When we talk about morale and self-esteem and shaping identity, they need to be able to identify and to know that you understand what they're going through. It shapes self-esteem, self-worth, and it also builds, could build a bridge of trust. We want to talk about outcomes. And, you know, right now we know there's a heightened level of distrust in our nation, ramping through our communities for a number of different reasons. And so it's critically, critically important that that funders and stakeholders get it. How important it is not to check these boxes, but if you really want to uh, fund BIPOC or, uh, organizations, that you understand the, the implications that it has on a number of different levels. You want to talk about strategy. You want to talk about community impact. Well, you need people from that community that we have not been given an opportunity to solve some of the issues, address some of the issues in our own communities. We have people coming from outside of our communities. When you hear all the statistics now, when you hear people talk about police community relationships, law enforcement, they don't even live in the communities. And I think that goes as far as nonprofits too, and nonprofit service delivery, wanting to engage stakeholders and leaders from that community that really know 
What's going on on the ground? What is really going on in the neighborhoods is critically, critically important. And we need to understand that it has a multi-layer impact. We want to talk about outcomes. For me, it's not even an outcome. It's about saving lives at this point. I agree. And that representation, like you say, is important for a multitude, a myriad of reasons. That self-efficacy is key, whether we're talking about the elementary school student that's going to an after-school program for out-of-school time learning, or the woman or, or male, Black woman, Black man that's returning from having been incarcerated and mm-hmm putting the pieces back together. That self-efficacy is very, very rich. Mm -hmm. The ability to look and see yourself in this agency, in this environment, and be affirmed. Absolutely. Very, very important. And I know that we can count on you to keep drumming, hitting the drum and lauding this message as well as myself and others. And I'm really grateful for that because this is a real serious matter and this has to change. And I wanna go back to something you shared in the article. And I'm gonna quote you here. You stated that current leaders of local nonprofits are the ones who can take a stand for racial equality. What can and should leaders be doing to shatter this black glass ceiling, this black ceiling? Absolutely. If you want my frank answer, I I think I could basically say they need to move out of the way. Um, When we look at who's leading the majority of our nonprofits, uh, they don't often look like you or I. And so many times we are directed to lead the the, the grassroots organizations in the neighborhood, which are fine, but there are other organizations we can lead. And so I often challenge the current leaders in nonprofits. Are you looking at your boards? Are you looking within your departments? Are you willing to mentor someone that doesn't look like you when you're thinking about retirement and your succession plan? Are you seeing a Sarah or a Kia or are you seeing a Julianne and Beth? You know, are you paying attention to departments that lack diversity? Are you paying attention to your hiring and retention numbers? Are you paying attention when there are complaints to HR regarding microaggressions, uh, regarding performance issues that may be challenged? Are you paying attention of that uh, diverse manager, that that Black manager that has so much potential that may need you as a mentor or a sponsor. So leaders uh, of our current nonprofits have a critical role right now to change the trajectory of uh, the direction at our nonprofit, our scope of nonprofit leadership. They have to be willing to say, you know what, maybe I need to take a back seat. And, you know, it's very interesting. I met someone from Syracuse the other day on one of our planning calls uh, from a domestic violence organization. And she is the COO, a, a Black woman, who's being groomed to be the succession plan. And her CEO got backlash 
in the community who's a white woman who spoke up regarding this issue and how she was taking a cut in her salary to begin to groom this woman of color, this black woman to be her succession plan and the backlash that she got from her donors and community leaders for speaking up about inequity uh, across nonprofits. So we need particularly uh, white women and white men that are in leadership roles in current nonprofits to speak up and not be a hidden bystander, be an ally, an undercover ally, as I often say, but to really speak up and take action, action uh, by what you do in your own internal organization to diversify it from the top down. You have a role, uh, executive debt directors, you have a critical role right now. Yeah, because there are some really systemic issues that these leaders have to look in the face and become really adamant about creating that inclusive work environment, you know, diverse and inclusive. And Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. It necessitates looking at those things that you you enumerated. How are you responding to the microaggressions? Because part of this is, this isn't just about putting a warm body in a seat. You wanna not only recruit diverse leaders, you wanna retain them, right? Mm -hmm. And create an environment in which they can thrive and are supported. So this is really, really key. I want to speak to what I think is a really beautiful story, a really beautiful part of your journey. You alluded to this in your article. Uh, You stated that you weren't successful in securing that executive leadership role in Rochester And before I continue, I want to just point out the dangers of of something like that. The fact that here you are, a Black woman living in a community. It's a community that you love, Mm -hmm. that you're celebrated, that you know, you know the constituents that live there, right? Like Mm -hmm. I would venture the back of your hand. And Mm -hmm. you have the ability to make inroads with that community in a way that I would argue that white executive director or CEO cannot because you have what's called, you know, that that street cred. And I don't care if people, Mm -hmm. you know, turn their nose up or their lip up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when you get somebody like a Kia or a Sarah, yeah, you're getting a highly educated, Mm -hmm. astute, qualified, all of that. But you're also getting a person that navigates that community because you're from that community right? And those community members will trust and open up to you and I in ways that they aren't necessarily comfortable and trusting enough of Mm -hmm. non-minority leaders, particularly white leadership to do that, right? Our community, we do have a bone to pick. We've had numerous examples where we've had egg on our face, where we've trusted folks to impart services and resources, and we learned that they didn't necessarily have our best interests. So yeah, there is some distrust and rightly so, right? I wanna talk about the fact that with you not 
securing a role in your community, the implications of that, communities are losing good people because if you work and live in Rochester and want to be an executive director in that community and you're not afforded that opportunity, you're going to take your talent and go elsewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like I took my talent from Richmond, California and brought it to the nation's capital, right? And that was ordained Mm -hmm. by God. And I believe those steps were ordered, but it's just the reality of the situation. Organizations are losing good people. Communities are losing good people, highly qualified talent for this reason. And that's problematic. And I want to step back and see what your reaction is to that. Absolutely. My son and his, um, you know, colleagues went off to college and they're all Wall Street pharmacists, CPAs, et cetera. And they often chuckle and say, we've never come back to Rochester. When you live in a community that you know is rooted in systemic racism, we're hearing a lot about segregation and, and, and housing and redlining. It's pretty frustrating. We want talent to come back home. They go off to college. You want them to come back home. And, and unfortunately, our communities are young people that are going off to college and not just young people. Many of my colleagues are moving down south that are moving elsewhere for opportunities. And these are communities that they were raised in. They know the communities. They're trusted in the communities. So if communities don't wake up, Because, you know, there is not that level of investment and authenticity to bring about change, to improve outcomes when you're not from this community. I guarantee you go out to one of the suburbs, those families are hand on. Those parents that are in executive leadership roles are using their power and influence to bring change in those schools and in those communities. So that same energy that they have in the suburbs where they live, we want to have individuals leading are agencies that are from this community that know firsthand what it means to live in these communities. And so that's critically important. We want to talk about change and bringing change and equity strategies and investing, advancing equity across systems. Figure out how you can retain talent in your community, talent of color that was born and raised in those areas. Let's not let them get away. We have it. We have gifted, talented individuals. They're doing everything they're taught to do. Go to college, get the education, get the training. We want them to come back and work in our communities. But if we don't address systemic racism, they're not coming back to these communities. For what? Uh, They just don't want a job. They want opportunities to advance. They want opportunities to be partners, equal partners. Agreed. I thought it was important to lift that up because that is yet another implication there. Yes, absolutely. I want to go back to something. Again, you stated that you didn't secure that executive leadership role in Rochester. However, you found your purpose and you have committed yourself to speaking out against structural racism and coaching women of color who are in pursuit 
of those nonprofit executive leadership roles that I'm always in awe and encouraged when I encounter people like you, women like you, who have taken a set of really challenging circumstances and allowed that challenge and that pain to propel them to purpose. You to talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing, um, particularly with your company, your organization, Positive Steps, all the wonderful DEI work that you're doing across the country. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. Positive Steps was birthed many years ago around event management. I went to conferences all over New York State and the country, and I would say there's something wrong with these health and human service conferences because they have no diversity. And so I would go back to the conference organizers and say, wait a minute, you can't find any social workers of color. I can find them for you. And so that's when I started Positive Steps many years ago at really even working full time. I always maintain Positive Steps consulting and really driving and pushing diversity at conferences and events and pushing leaders of color to walk in purpose. And so some of the work that I've done with getting that no. My philosophy is no, I'm not an angry Black woman that I didn't get the job. I am going to push and pull and elevate to the highest levels possible women of color and help them along through coaching and motivation. And when there is an opportunity, and that's another thing we have to get, is women of color. It can't be about us. I have to be willing to put Kia out there. If I know she's a great fundraiser and I know someone's looking for a fundraiser, I need to be saying, you know what? It's not for me. I got someone for you. And that's what I've always prided myself in doing through positive steps, really having a speaker's bureau of color when someone's looking for experts, scientists, a STEM, a pharmacist. My daughter-in-law is a pharmacist of color in that movement and putting forth other women to walk in purpose. That's what I find passion. That's what Positive Steps is about, helping companies build inclusive environments, helping companies not just look at their retention strategies. And also the Women of Color Summit was birthed from this, me getting a no, saying it's not okay. We're talented, we're gifted, we're spending millions and billions of dollars to get these advanced degrees and we're still getting no. So we have an annual summit, bring women of color from all over the country, all over the industry together. And that is under Eliversity where I work full time. But Positive Steps is still an active driving force, doing a lot of work around the country, around coaching, mentorship, and helping companies understand this can't be a a check the box if you're going to sustain and if you're authentically serious about advancing this work. That's right. And I'm really impressed with what you have been doing and are doing through Positive Steps and As a entrepreneur, I've always been entrepreneurial minded. And I remember when you and I talked a month ago, we talked about how there are so many, I mean, we know that black women are leading and killing it and and starting small businesses and launching new businesses. We're the leader, right? Mm -hmm. And so many women are, 
you know, got side businesses and the, the gig economy, participating in the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> because so many of us in a lot of cases, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, you have women that are black women that are not being paid equitably due to disparity, mm-hmm. the lack of parity in pay. Right. So, you know, I just have tremendous respect for you and how you turned that pain and those no into purpose and how you talk from a place of, you know what, I accepted the no so that somebody else could get a yes and watch me. Watch what I got in store. Watch me work. We're going to get those yeses and we're going to keep working at it. I want to talk a little bit about the upcoming conference that Positive Steps is hosting the BIPOC conference, April 28th through 29th this month. Talk a little bit about it and and tell the good people listening where they need to go and register. Absolutely. PositiveStepsNY.com is where you can find more information. This conference is for health and human service professionals, grant makers, grant writers, fundraisers, nurses, doctors, lawyers, government entities. If you are an HR recruiter, this is not just for people of color. I want to make that clear. We need white folks in the room. I need to say that. And this conference, we're going to talk about hiring and retention of diverse talent. We're going to talk about healthcare disparities, the COVID-19 vaccine, distrust, what we know. We're going to talk about community police relationships. We're going to talk about economic development. We're going to talk about mental health mental health as it relates to communities of color. You know, we are reliving what we're seeing on TV. We know what happened in Minnesota last year, last week. We know this is real in our communities are experiencing levels of trauma on top of trauma. And so we're really going to hammer on on mental health and the stigma in communities of color, the disparities, having community mental health centers that lack diversity, but yet serve large communities of color. We're gonna talk about, everyone's talking about human-centered design. We're gonna talk about elevating the voice of parents with lived experiences, program participants, consumers with lived experience, re-entry, Corporate responsibility. What role does corporate responsibility have in this social justice movement? We're going to talk about men and re-entry and an array of topics. Every industry, every level of staffing can experience some learning and some takeaways from this very cost-effective conference that we are also offering CEUs. We're offering CEUs for social workers and counselors, and we are pending CEUs for HR professionals. So I hope you will come. It's a virtual experience, high quality uh, presenters and keynotes and speakers. And we are so happy to have yours truly, Kia, joining us for a equity in action, philanthropy and grant making executive session on the 29th. So we're excited about putting forth this conference with talent of color, talent, executive leaders, keynotes of color for a high 
quality, we need to take action. We can't just be talking about change and strategy. We need to be taking these words and put them into action. So that's what this conference is all about. I love it. And I'm super excited to participate. I'm super excited and appreciate you for presenting that opportunity for me to take part in that roundtable. I am incredibly passionate about racial justice in philanthropy and uplifting BIPOC, particularly Black-led organizations, because coming from where I come from, I used to have some shame around my story and the lived experience that I had with poverty growing up. And in coming to terms with that, I don't carry that shame anymore. I acknowledge that had it not been for community service programs, there are days that my family, my sister and I in our single parent household would not have eaten. There were times when my mother, we, listen, we relied on every community benefit and program there was serving my neighborhood. So when I think about this, when I think about what racial justice, what racial equity and philanthropy looks like, I've got a lot to say about that. And so I appreciate you presenting that opportunity. No, thank you so much. And that's important. And you had, uh, you said a couple things, not being ashamed of where you came from. I just gave keynote addresses, virtual space in Maryland and Philadelphia and other areas in upstate New York. And I showed a PowerPoint slide video introduction. And I showed where I came from. Yes, that welfare cheese, that government cheese that we love. And I show pictures of food stamps. I needed to be authentic about where I came from so people can understand who I am and why this social justice and equity work is important to me. It's not the degree that defines me. It's not the amount of money that I make that defines me. How I grew up in my history of who I am is so important part of this journey. And we can't forget it. And we have to be willing to help someone out. And so it's so important that when we have a seat of influence, that we use that platform, whatever that influence is to help someone else out. It's so important, Black women, we can't forget it. I cannot be selfish with this gift because I'm on an assignment. I am on a greater assignment that doesn't belong to me. And so I want to live and walk in purpose with everything that is said and done with this journey on earth. That's beautiful. If I had my tambourine, I did it a couple of times on that one. I'm telling you the God's honest. And I believe that. And I'm so encouraged by your story. I'm going to pivot to the bonus question portion of the discussion. We get a little personal. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. All right. I want to know, what are you doing for self-care these days amid all the crazy that's going on? You know, I think for me, you know, being a woman of faith, a, a preacher, evangelist, however terms it's used out there, understanding that there's a greater call on my life, prayer, meditation, and reading the word, of course. I have a treadmill downstairs, but I don't go down there enough. And, and walking 
and being very self-aware. And, and I think for me, self-care may look different for everyone. And I think for me, just taking space in the morning of not doing anything, but just sitting there and laying and thinking and being thankful for just waking up. I think just taking that space of quietness, not to do anything else, but just to take a space and sit there, look there. You want to twiddle your finger. You want to get a stress ball. You want to get whatever it may be. I think for me, taking that space to just breathe and reflect. If it's going out on my porch and saying, wow, that's it for me. And I also believe in taking vacations. It's not always possible now. Thrive on being able to be with my family. But To answer your question specifically, I think for me, worship, worship music, reading the word and meditation and affirmations have gotten me through some challenging times in my life and and particularly this past year. Yeah, very important. Getting that time in, that, that is very important. And I had to learn in the midst of the pandemic that being out of church I had to come to grips with what's that really meant for me in the way Mm -hmm. of worship and spending that time and creating that sanctuary in in my house, right? Mm -hmm. And just really spending that time with God. So I concur and and appreciate that. Mm -hmm. What words of encouragement do you have for aspiring Black nonprofit leaders and founders? If I can share one, uh, one of my quotes and mottos that's on my website, I believe that personal, professional, and spiritual development is a lifelong process. Things are not going to happen overnight. You got to be patient. It is a lifelong process. It's not going to happen overnight. Be patient. Keep your eyes and focus on purpose and things that you're passionate about. You can't get caught up into power, politics, prestigiousness, pay, popularity. Stay focused on purpose. You have to recognize that there is a purpose for you. You were called specifically for something. And we go through different seasons in our life. Oh, I am right now I'm going through a season with a child navigating the mental health system. And now my advocacy is working with BIPOC families around mental health advocacy. And that's okay. And there's different seasons in recognizing and being in tune, in sync with that season that you're in. Maybe the season is not for you to be a leader, but to learn and build everything you need to do to be ready when you get in that space. So a lot of self-reflection and a lot of self-awareness on on your capacity. As you said, many of us have two or three jobs and gigs and and consulting works, but really recognizing your capacity at this space is really, really important. And be patient with yourself and know not so hard on yourself along this journey. How can our listeners connect with you? You can always contact me. Go to the website. My email's all over the website at positivestepsny.com. I do return emails and inquiries. 
every night when I'm in a space of working two hours a night and looking through uh, inquiries from the website and emails. So again, positive steps in why we have information on all of our events uh, that are virtual as well as upcoming refreshing that we're having in Niagara Falls, a small convening renewing and refreshing for leaders, kingdom leaders. So please reach out to me. I'm here to help. I am a servant. I consider myself the servant. If I don't have answers, I'll pair you up with someone else uh, that is qualified and that could possibly help you. Uh, but keep doing what you're doing, Kia. And I can't thank you enough for this amazing opportunity and this podcast, this assignment that you have now to bring awareness when we talk about fundraising and philanthropy, we, we need to be talking about these conversations, but moving from conversation to action. And you're doing just that with your work. So thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you for stopping by the Black Fundraisers podcast and for all the wonderful work that you're doing, helping Black men and women break through that Black ceiling that's looming over the nonprofit sector. As always, good people listening, I want to thank you for tuning in. As I always say, you could be anywhere in the world in the internet streets. So I appreciate you listening. And I want to encourage you, good people, be extra kind to yourself this week. As Sarah shared, as, as you know, as I know, we're seeing and processing a lot of trauma as we are watching the Derek Chauvin trial, not the George Floyd trial, he's not on trial. The Derek Chauvin trial going on. And then we have the latest tragic murder of Dante Wright, another young black brother, a young black man murdered at the hands of police, not just any police, Minneapolis police, which we know is the same community in which George Floyd was murdered. Right. So now you have two families grappling with loss. And although I see these families leaning in and supporting one another, it's, it's still very senseless. So I want to encourage you, good people listening. Be kind to yourself. Be vigilant about your self-care. My thoughts and prayers are with the right family and anyone reeling from the trauma of what we are seeing play out on the news, on our social media threads. Be vigilant and until next week, stay tuned, stay down and keep your head up. Thanks for listening to the Black Fundraisers Podcast. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to the Black Fundraisers Podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify or wherever you listen and leave a five-star review. Connect with Kia on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter to stay connected.